May God be within us to refresh us, around us to protect us, before us to guide us, above us to bless us, beneath us to hold us up. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is the sixth Sunday after Pentecost. The Collect tells us that the theme of this Sunday is devotion to God and unity with our fellow believers. Our readings this morning come from the second book of Samuel, the second epistle to the Corinthians, and the gospel according to St. Mark. I propose to preach this morning on the readings from Second Samuel and Mark's gospel. As is the norm, they are the ones that form the core of the Sunday theme. The readings from the epistle are serial and may or may not relate to the Sunday theme. Today is a may-not day. <laughs> Second Samuel might be called the book of King David, since it traces his reign. Its unknown author is called the early source. He wrote during the reign of King Solomon, who, as his son, succeeded King David. The author's work is of such remarkable historical and literary quality that he deserves the title, the father of history, a title usually bestowed upon the Greek historian Herodotus, who lived 500 years later. The author strongly believes that the establishment of the kingship in Israel is a divinely ordained blessing and the salvation of the nation, a view not shared by some of his contemporaries. Thanks to the genius of the author of the early source, 2 Samuel is one of the most clearly written, most homogeneous, and most easily understood of all biblical books. This is seen particularly clearly a bit later in the book, where the author seems to be writing from direct personal knowledge. Throughout this account of David's reign, the author is at pains to express that Israel is the people of the Lord, and that his providence is at work in their history. To place these events in the timeline of history for you, David reigned in the first third of the 10th century BC. So the story this morning likely occurred about the years 1000 to 993 BC. Leading up to our reading, David has been king of Judah seven years. The forces of the late King Saul have at last ceased their resistance. There have been some treacherous assassinations which redounded to David's benefit. Yet he refused to rejoice in the deaths of these <coughs> opponents and publicly led mourning for them. As a result of the opposition drying up, we are told that the tribes of Israel, all of them, come to King David. They make a covenant with him and anoint him king over Israel as well as Judah, thus establishing the United Kingdom. With all due respect to our British brethren across the pond, they are Johnny-come-latelys to that title. With remarkable brevity, considering the monumental significance and importance of these events, the author of the early source relates that David took Jerusalem to be capital of the newly united kingdom. 
Jerusalem was a neutral site for a capital. Think the District of Columbia, which is in no state. David called Jerusalem the city of David. Perhaps self-effacement wasn't one of David's long suits. We are told that David reigned as king 40 years, seven years as king of Judah, and 33 years as king of the United Kingdom. Here, as in many places in the Bible, take the hard number 40 years or 40 days with a grain of salt. It really means a very long time. It seems that one of David's first goals as king of the United Kingdom was to capture Jerusalem as his capital. If you happen to look at the citation for this reading shown in your bulletin, you may have noticed that verses 6, 7, and 8 were skipped. This may be because they have become textually corrupt and therefore hard to accurately translate and interpret. However, what they seem to tell is the military means by which David captured Jerusalem. The city was a virtually impregnable fortress. It was so strong that it was said that it could be defended by a force of the blind and the lame who would be able to defend it from all attackers. If what we can glean from these verses is correct, they describe how David's forces under Joab, carried out David's plan of attack and were able to enter the city through its water shaft. This shaft had been dug through solid rock from the city to a spring near the village of Siloam. It filled a pool in the fortress and allowed the city to withstand siege and be continually supplied with water without having to go outside the walls to get it. Such a water source would, of course, be a vital asset. However, it also appears to have been a fatal weakness in that Joab was able to lead an invading force through the tunnel and capture the city. You have to admit, it's a pretty neat trick. From these small beginnings, world-shaking events grew. Jerusalem was destined to become the center of three great world religions, the most fought-over capital on earth, the scene of the passion and triumphant victory of Jesus Christ, Son of Man, Son of God, and Son of David. Its name has become a symbolic description of the perfect reign of God. The book of Revelation says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. Moving now to the reading from Mark's Gospel. We have two stories. Jesus pays a visit to his birthplace of Nazareth, and he sends the twelve out on a missionary journey. It's notable that Mark and John show no knowledge of the tradition in Matthew and Luke 
of Jesus being born in Bethlehem and only taking up residence in Nazareth after the flight into Egypt to escape Herod's wrath. In visiting Nazareth, Jesus appears to have been on a journey to preach his message, not to pay a family visit, as is shown by the presence of his disciples. The efforts to preach his message are frustrated by the skepticism and outright hostility of the townsfolk. They jeer that they know all about Jesus the carpenter and his father Joseph and his brothers and his sisters. As an aside, perhaps you may have heard the famous Catholic acclamation, Blessed Mary, Ever Virgin, proclaiming Mary's perpetual virginity, a doctrine which was created out of whole cloth by the Roman Church and is utterly without scriptural warrant. That is, the Bible says nothing about it. How to reconcile such a doctrine with the widespread knowledge of Jesus' siblings? Scholars who don't hold to the ever-virgin doctrine read the words brothers and sisters at face value. Children of Mary and Joseph, younger than Jesus. However, those who seek to uphold the ever-virgin doctrine cite an ancient Semitic usage of the term brothers, which includes the usual meaning and expands it to include other relatives of various degrees of blood kinship. Thus, in this passage, these people hold that the brothers and sisters are not siblings of Jesus, but various other relatives, such as cousins. This allows them to hold the ever-virgin doctrine, even if it does seem a bit of a stretch. It's better to take the words in their natural sense, that Jesus was evidently a member of a fairly large family, headed by the carpenter, Joseph. This is certainly easy to accept when you consider the high rate of infant mortality at the time and the need to raise up extra hands to help out in the home and the family business without the burden of paying wages to employees. Getting back to the story, the skepticism of the townsfolk made it exceedingly difficult for Jesus to carry out his work there. He utters the famous line, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. He was able to heal a few sick people, but he marveled at the general unbelief. It may well be that Mark could not accept the idea that the power of Jesus could be thus thwarted. So he included the disclaimer to explain it. In the second part of the reading, Jesus sends the twelve out on a missionary journey without him. He confers on them powers over unclean spirits, powers like his own. He directed them to take only the simplest of equipment, only a staff. They were to take no food, 
no bag, no money, and wear only sandals and one tunic. They were to accept the hospitality of those who heard their message of salvation. But if they were rebuffed, they were to shake the dust of that town off their feet. That is a symbolic act showing a complete break in relations and a repudiation of further responsibility for whatever became of those unwelcoming folks. The Twelve seem to have had a good amount of success and cast out many demons and healed the sick. However, it's worth pointing out that this conferred power was only temporary, since after returning to Jesus, the Twelve are as lacking in initiative and independence as they were before. What do we take from this episode? This is Jesus directing his apostles to go forward when they meet failure in proclaiming the gospel. When they face disappointment, don't be stopped. Just close that chapter and start the next. There are other towns, other efforts to be made. If the first attempt doesn't turn out as hoped, go on to the next, whether there or somewhere else. God is rich in resources. The apostles were not held responsible for results, only for efforts. This is a bit like the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. I dare say that this passage is an inspiration and a salve to preachers to this day. What does this mean for us? It means that we, all of us, not just those of us who wear our collars backwards, but all of us have a mission to make Christ known to other people. Whether or not they choose to listen is up to them. And whether or not they choose to listen has big consequences for their futures. Recalling that the theme for this Sunday is devotion to God and unity with our fellow believers. In our first reading, David sets a fine example of his devotion to God and his loyalty and unity to his fellow Jews. In the Gospel reading, we see two different views. In Nazareth, the people fail miserably at showing devotion to God and unity with Jesus, their fellow. While the Twelve, on their missionary journeys, seem to encounter both acceptance and rejection, but are, by and large, pleased with the results of their efforts. Sending out the Twelve was a watershed in the work of Christ. He sent out human carriers of his message. This was a first and of major significance. The going out of pairs of the twelve stirs the imagination. Two by two, they are the head of the column, that long line of witnesses, which winds down through the millennia and out to the ends of the earth, 
to us. The torch has been passed. So be vigilant in devotion to our God and earnest in fellowship with other believers. And recall that old aphorism we don't hear much anymore. Don't keep the faith, spread it. Amen.